Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at two more of Bach's sonatas for violin and harpsichord obbligato. It's sometimes suggested that Bach's reputation as an organist and composer died with him, and that for many years he was all but forgotten. It's certainly true that stylistic currents were, at the time of Bach's death, trending away from the strict contrapuntal style with which Bach was generally associated. But those currents had had their earliest glimmerings a couple of decades earlier, and, as we know from some earlier episodes, Bach was not completely oblivious to them, as is obvious from his occasional flirtations with the Gallant style. But there's little question that after his death, Bach's music was considered old-fashioned by some, music lovers and composers alike, and there was not a great deal of his music in print to circulate. That does not, however, mean that Bach's music was completely neglected between his death and the reintroduction of Bach's music to the German public by Mendelssohn with his 1829 performance of a somewhat bolderized version of the St. Matthew Passion. Some of Bach's music had continued to circulate after his death, usually in manuscript copies, among his relatively small but determined band of supporters, which numbered among them some of the finest composers of their day. This smaller body of music included pedagogical works, like the well-tempered clavier, of course, but it also included the sonatas for violin and harpsichord obbligato, and for good reason, since these works contain some of Bach's most attractive ideas. Today we're going to look first at Sonata Number no. 5 in F minor, BWV 1018. The first movement has no tempo marking, but first movements of this type are generally moderate to slow, as the 3-2 meter also suggests. As usual, we hear the most important thematic idea right out of the box, this time in the harpsichord. The melody, starting on a weak beat and unfolding primarily in quarter notes and eighth notes, begins on the fifth of the scale, leaps up a fourth to the tonic note, and then right back down again. It continues down the scale and concludes on the third of the scale decorated by a lower neighbor tone figure. It's a simple but forceful idea which is echoed an octave lower, still in the right hand, against a slower-moving, arpeggio-derived left-hand bass line. Here's a simplified example of the first two bars. Measure 3 actually introduces three new ideas, a faster-moving triadic bass pattern, which is repeated sequentially down a step in bars 4 and 5, with the melody and harmonies above it also repeating in a sequential pattern, a slower-moving line in half notes in the top voice of the right-hand keyboard part, which introduces some interesting suspensions which have a somewhat delayed resolution, and a brief new melodic idea in the lower voice of the same right-hand part, we're going to concentrate on this third idea first. It's only five notes long, and, like the bass line beneath it, it's repeated down a step twice. Here's a much simplified example showing just this new melodic idea, which we'll call thematic idea number two. Is it a new idea? It begins by quoting the last three notes of thematic idea number one, which I mentioned a few minutes ago. 
But from that point on, it is reasonably new, although it also echoes the opening ascending forth of the first melodic idea. Let's hear now how all of this fits together with an actual performance of the first part of the movement. You'll notice that the violin doesn't enter until a third of the way through measure six, and then does so unobtrusively on a sustained dominant right before it cadence on the F minor tonic chord. The violin then continues with a brief decorative figure, which had just back to dominant, a more ornamented version of the cadence just heard in the harpsichord. Right at the end of my example, you heard the first thematic idea re-enter in the harpsichord. It does so in a variant, actually, when we're still on the dominant and the cadence hasn't quite been consummated yet but it then does so again back on the original pitch level, although an octave higher, when we return to F minor. At that point, it appears as if we're going to repeat the opening measures of the movement all over again, but that's not quite what happens. Instead, ascending chromatic motion in the bass line pushes us toward B-flat minor, where measures 3 through 5 are now repeated. We're back in F minor soon enough, and we head toward another cadence, but this time it's embellished by a more elaborate gesture in the violin a triadic ascent peaking on the ninth of the dominant chord before it works its way back down. You heard it right at the end of my example, but I want to highlight it again because this motive, which we'll call Violin 1, plays an important role later on. I'm not going to suggest that nothing new happens from this point on to the end of the movement, but it is true that we hear again and again from the harpsichord the same thematic ideas I referenced earlier in a variety of keys. The violin's part in all this does develop to a greater extent and dominates the action more and more with lyrical expressive gestures, including the violin one idea I just played. It also contributes slow-moving suspension figures, similar to those first heard in the harpsichord in the opening measures, but more broadly conceived and more impactful in terms of creating dissonant tension. The violin even makes a few direct references to thematic idea number one, which opened the movement. But it is the suspension figures, in connection with the expressive ascending arpeggios based loosely on violin one, which I referred to earlier, that garner most of the attention. After a fair amount of modulation, we eventually return to F minor for the final time, and something very much like the opening of the movement is heard again in the harpsichord alone. But soon the violin reestablishes its dominance with leaps to and from suspensions in a long, arching line. The conclusion of the movement is particularly interesting, 
three bars from the end, Bach pauses on a major seventh chord on the sixth scale degree, and we hear what amounts to a brief cadenza from violin and harpsichord before we come to a close on the dominant. We'll hear the last part of the piece with the familiar themes in the harpsichord alternating with and embellished by the broadly flowing lines of the violin part. While the opening slow movement can hardly be thought of as representing the tragic side of F minor, there's no question that it projects a pensive, even somber mood. But the next movement, marked allegro and in common time, is quite different. Another binary form movement with two repeated sections, it begins with a lively, if not quite perky, tune, starting on tonic, beginning slowly in half notes, but picking up momentum quickly with a distinctive mixture of eighths and sixteenths in a dactylic pattern, quarter notes, including one distinctive ascending octave leap to the melodic high point, and even suspensions across the bar. The third measure is a variant of the second up a third, and by the fourth measure, the melody emerges into a stream of stepwise sixteenths, which gradually work their way down the scale sequentially. Here's what it sounds like in a simplified version. There's an equally lively countersubject present right from the opening measure in the harpsichord left hand, one that shares some motivic elements with the main theme and which also serves as a bass line over which chord symbols signal to the keyboard player how to fill in the chords above it. After four bars, we cadence on C minor and the imitation begins at the fifth in the harpsichord right hand while the left hand continues with part of the countersubject below it and the violin delivers a flow of mostly 16th notes which borrows both from the last part of the subject, but also from the counter-subject as well. Right as the harpsichord right hand is finishing up its imitation in measure 8, we hear in the violin a new idea, a syncopated figure, short, long, short, eighth, quarter, eighth, in which the violin leaps up a sixth and then comes right back down. We hear it again in the next measure, prefaced by a motive that sounds suspiciously like an inversion of the first half of measure 2 of the subject. 
Here's a simplified example of these new measures in the violin. This little syncopated figure may not sound too remarkable in context when it first appears, but something very much like it will play an important role later on. Halfway through bar 10, the harpsichord left hand comes in with the theme, back on tonic. At first, it seems as if we've abandoned the original countersubject at this point, but again, elements from that countersubject soon show up once more in the harpsichord right hand. Here's an excerpt through to the end of the harpsichord left hand statement. After this last statement of the theme has run its course, we flow into the second part of the first section of the movement. At this point, we encounter some new ideas. The violin introduces a sequentially descending series of descending sevenths with a lower note tied into a strong beat. You heard just a little bit of this at the end of my example. While the harpsichord right hand plays with the motives I pointed out earlier. These descending sevenths in the violin give away after three bars to a series of arpeggio figures, figures that are promptly echoed by the harpsichord right hand as we head to the key of A flat. And even though the subject per se never returns in this first section of the movement, except of course when the entire first section is repeated, we do hear components of it, notably those drawn from the second bar of the subject. These motives from the second bar of the subject, or variants of them, are repeated sequentially down a third as we speed toward C minor to conclude the first section. Here is the second part of the first section, beginning with the descending sevenths in the violin, as the harpsichord left hand has completed its statement of the theme and concluding at the end of the first section. The second section of the movement opens with a new idea introduced by the violin and echoed immediately by the harpsichord right hand. As usual, this idea, which heads immediately in the direction of B-flat minor, is not completely new. It employs a syncopated ascending leap that also had an important role to play in the first section. After a fairly frenetic opening, the melody relaxes somewhat, lapsing into a series of three-note motives featuring an accented neighbor tone, sometimes upper and sometimes lower, slurred to its resolution note. The harpsichord right hand, however, does not relax, spinning out a series of mostly stepwise scale patterns against it. Here's a simplified example of the violin and right hand of the harpsichord in the beginning of the second section.
Right at the end of my example, you could hear the violin break into an arpeggio pattern in 16th notes, echoed immediately by the harpsichord, identical to one that played a prominent role in the first section. As the second section proceeds, other motives from the first section come into play. We hear the opening two or three bars, which then go wandering off down other paths, in one case leading to the opening bars of the second section. We hear motives from the second section theme split up and divided between violin and harpsichord right hand, sometimes played simultaneously. We hear the falling sevenths from the first section, sometimes leading directly to the familiar arpeggio patterns, just as they did in the first section. And these are just some of the thematic ideas which bounce from part to part as the second section proceeds. We do finally encounter the opening theme from the first section more or less intact, just a few measures before the movement closes. But it would be easy to miss, because the first bar has been cleverly reharmonized as we venture back from C minor to F minor. And in the final measures of the movement, we hear old syncopations combined with a few new ones as we drive to the final cadence. Here's the second section of the movement without the repeat. The third movement, an adagio in C minor, is unique among the violin sonatas for its pervasive use of double stops throughout the movement. We've seen some use of multiple stops in the violin, often triple stops at that, already in the second movement of sonata number two in A major. But most of the writing for the violin in that movement was linear, whereas in the slow movement here, the role of the violin is exclusively to provide a harmonic background for the harpsichord which alternates right-hand lines based on scale fragments and left-hand arpeggio figures for the most part. In a situation like this, the interest of the movement is generally focused not as much on the slowly developing violin lines as melodies, but on the artfulness of the chord progression and the degree to which the violin double stops affect the ebb and flow of musical tension. The first few measures of the movement set the pattern. The violin double stops proceed frequently in relatively smooth-sounding sixths and thirds, but also employ some more strident intervals of an augmented fourth or minor seventh, which are particularly effective when the violin provides a struck suspension dissonance over the implied harmony beneath it. 
the harpsichord right-hand scale-wise melodic fragments presented largely in 32nd notes, for the overall tempo is quite slow here, enter slightly after the first beat and third beats of the measure, and usually end with an ascending step or leap, while the left hand plays the initial downbeat of the measure and then fills in the second and fourth beats with ascending and descending arpeggios of the same chord. The slow-moving harmonic progression presents no real surprises in the opening measures. Bach uses the diminished supertonic chord, half diminished actually because it has a minor seventh on top, the chord based on the second scale degree, with great effect twice within the first four bars, thereby providing a little additional tension to drive the progression ahead. Here's an excerpt of the first five bars. At the end of the fourth bar, and at the end of my excerpt, you might have noticed that Bach begins to move away from C minor and toward the key of E flat major. Shortly after that, he heads up a fifth to the key of B flat major, although he doesn't stay there very long. The right hand mostly descending scale passages continue as do the left hand arpeggios, although before long we move into some tonally ambiguous territory. The melodic content in the violin part, such as it is, unfolds very slowly, sometimes in the top voice, sometimes in the bottom, and certain melodic patterns do repeat. Still, for the most part, and despite the occasional brief solo passages, the violin's contributions mostly amount to no more than the highest, most prominent, and at times most strident part of the changing chords beneath. And although there are some tonally ambiguous passages in the middle of the movement, we end clearly enough in A-flat major. Here are the final measures of the movement. The final movement of the sonata, in F minor, 3-8 time, and marked vivace, is a more conventional one in most respects, but interesting nevertheless. The main subject is presented in the violin against a bass line in the harpsichord left hand, which is again provided with continual chord symbols to be realized by the right. Its two main distinguishing features are its repeated ties across the bar and, starting on the fifth of the scale, its ascending chromatic movement climaxing with a trill and concluding a minor sixth higher. While the subject proper concludes at the beginning of bar 5 with a cadence on tonic, my simplified example is going to include bar 6 as well. 
Bar 5 not only provides the final note of the subject, but also a distinctive rhythmic figure, a dotted eighth leaping up to a descending flow of sixteenth notes, which launches us into the counter-subject. We're going to call the chromatic ascent and across-the-bar tithes of the first four measures thematic idea number one, and we're going to call the distinctive motive I just referred to as thematic idea number two, although it's really just a single motive which later takes on a life of its own. So here's a simplified version of the first six bars, leaving out the continual chords in the harpsichord right hand, but including the ascending sequential pattern in the left hand bass line. The harpsichord right hand answers on the second beat of bar five, just as the violin launches into the counter subject. The first note becomes a fourth higher than the subject in order to fit in with the prevailing F minor harmony, but the remainder of the answer is at the fifth as we would expect. We then encounter a break in the imitative action for a four-bar episode of sorts, having moved to C minor. Here we're introduced to another new idea in measure nine by the violin. It begins in this instance with an octave leap in a lower neighbor tone and, like the subject itself, also features ties across the bar. We'll call it thematic idea number three, and it recurs in various guises along the way. It's a little less important in the grand scheme of things than the first two thematic ideas, but still has an independent role to play. And although I've simplified the texture in my example, there are still a number of other things to listen for in this episodic passage. Not only are we introduced to the new idea I just mentioned, idea number three, but the harpsichord right hand is still very much interested in idea number two, that one bar motive that originally launched us into the counter subject. And then, after four bars, the subject is reintroduced in the harpsichord left hand, down a couple of octaves, while the right hand reemploys the original counter subject down an octave. Meanwhile, the violin also echoes idea number two before passing on to more neutral scale-wise material. That's a lot to take in, so let's hear how it all fits together in an actual performance of the first 24 measures. Near the end of my example and after another brief episode, we hear the subject again, back in the violin and up a fifth from its original presentation because we are once again in C minor. The subject comes back four bars later in the harpsichord right hand on the original pitch level, but reharmonized, at least initially, and accompanied in the violin by a sequential repetition of the first bar of the counter subject, also known as idea number two. This leads to another new figuration pattern, a snippet of which you heard right at the end of my example. We're not going to label this one, but you will hear it again later in the piece. 
In the measures that follow, Bach mingles in some new ideas, although ones frequently characterized by the same ties across the bar that I've already noted in connection with earlier thematic ideas. And tonally, we're in a pretty restless territory at this point, until a little less than halfway through the movement, when the violin temporarily drops out and we have a solid cadence in C minor. The harpsichord right hand takes over the main melodic interest at this point, with an idea that bears some resemblance to the opening subject. It does exhibit the same ties across the bar lines and a similar rhythmic profile, but it lacks one crucial element, the chromatically ascending line. Furthermore, it doesn't stay in C minor very long at all, wandering off primarily by means of sequences to some rather different tonal ports. When the violin enters, it does so by repeating the right hand's not quite the original subject theme, we'll call it thematic idea number one variant, after which we continue our tonal adventures. Interestingly, the ascending chromatic line that we've been missing shows up in the left-hand bass line, as it quotes the opening subject in its original form in B-flat minor. But it isn't until four bars later that the violin picks up the hint and brings back the subject in the original key of F minor. Then the harpsichord right hand joins in as well, but not surprisingly, back in C minor. This exposition is followed by another wandering episode that features a lot of thematic idea number two, repeated against ascending lines in both hands of the harpsichord, and thematic idea number three now joins the fun as well. This interplay of mostly familiar ideas or variants of those ideas goes on for some time. The violin reintroduces thematic idea number one variant heard earlier when the harpsichord right hand drops out for a bit, and the right hand rejoins the texture five bars later with a version of the same variant. But the original version of the first subject does eventually return. It sort of sneaks in, actually, after a cadence in F minor in the harpsichord left hand, with an overlapping entrance in the violin to follow, and a partial entrance in the harpsichord right hand. But it's the last hurrah for the subject, as the final measures are dominated by the second and third thematic ideas as we drive to a final cadence. We'll hear the last part of the movement, beginning where the violin introduces the variant of the opening subject and is imitated by the harpsichord right hand. We'll turn now to the Sonata in G Major, BWV 1019. It may not be the greatest of the sonatas for violin and harpsichord, but it is certainly the most curious. It exists in multiple versions with various movements switched in and out over time, with the final version put together in Leipzig. But the final version of the sonata still has its quirks. It starts not with a slow movement, but with a fast fugal movement marked allegro in three parts actually written originally as a da capo form, with the first part repeated. It's widely described as concerto-like in its texture and distribution of instruments, and we'll see some of the reasons for that in a moment. 
The opening theme in what turns out to be the opening ritornello is not Bach's most distinctive melody, but it's certainly an energetic one. It starts on tonic and proceeds after an initial but brief charge up the scale to undulate downward in a combination of triadic leaps and scale passages, ending up two octaves lower than it began, all of this in a stream of sixteenth notes. The countersubject in the harpsichord right hand is less busy than the subject, unfolding mostly in ascending triadic patterns in eighth notes. It does, however, show a few more interesting rhythmic details as it proceeds, notably a quick little lower neighbor tone figure of two sixteenths and an eighth, and other figures combining sixteenths and eighth notes. And as the subject works its way downward, the countersubject ascends, peaking quite a bit above the descending subject. In bar five, the harpsichord right hand picks up the subject at the fifth, while the violin takes the countersubject. The same dynamic is in play. As the harpsichord line sinks lower and lower into the texture, the violin moves higher in its range. Here's a performance of the opening eight bars. You may have noticed that these opening measures are more harmonically stagnant than usual for Baroque music in general and Bach in particular. We hear the tonic chord of G major for four measures in a row and then shift to the dominant chord for three before we encounter its dominant. Sitting on the tonic chord for four consecutive bars at the beginning of the movement is by no means unheard of for Bach, but it is a bit unusual because his harmonic rhythm usually moves somewhat faster. After eight measures, we encounter our first episode, which coincides with the middle section of the decapo form. You heard just a little bit of it at the end of my example. It starts on the dominant in the new key of D major. The violin carries on with patterns somewhat related to the subject, but the harpsichord right hand introduces a distinctive new idea, brimming with large ascending and descending leaps and across-the-bar ties. Here's a simplified example of it. After two bars on the new tonic chord, the violin and harpsichord right hand switch parts, while the left hand bass line, after the start-stop rhythms heard earlier in the movement, now proceeds with a more consistent flow of eighth notes, although it sometimes borrows the quick little lower neighbor tone figure from the right hand's original countersubject. But on the whole, there's a lot of repetition here, and not much that is new in regard to thematic material although we do now begin to touch on other tonal areas along the way and experience much more harmonic variety than in the opening measures of the movement. At measure 22, we hear a definitive cadence back in the original tonic of G major, and our first solo section begins, featuring the violin. Here, the right hand ceases to provide a contrapuntal line and restricts itself to realizing continuo chords over the left-hand bass line. The violin solo passage is in itself unremarkable. Its most distinctive feature is probably the occasional ascending leaps which pop up within the figuration patterns. 
After five bars, the right hand imitates the violin's pattern at the fifth, and the busyness and complexity of the texture picks up considerably. But four measures later, the texture is again simplified. After a strong cadence in B minor, violin and harpsichord right hand proceed for a couple of measures, mostly in thirds and sixths, and we hear what might be thought of as an internal ritonello. When the two voices break apart, they tend to employ motives similar to the ones I referred to earlier. There is one somewhat new idea, however, presented three times in the violin, each time a step lower, as Bach moves briefly toward D minor. This motive and the idea I singled out earlier from the first episode play a large role in both violin and less obviously in the harpsichord right hand as we head to our second solo section. This one features the harpsichord alone for the first four bars, employing motives reminiscent of those heard in the violin solo section, at times almost the exact equivalent, especially when the violin itself enters the fray and takes the lead from the harpsichord right hand. All three parts are soon quite busy as we head back to G major, only to pause on a trill on the dominant so we can be launched into the repeat of the initial section of the piece. Here's the end of the internal ritonello leading into the second solo section, which sounds much less like a solo section as it proceeds, leading back to the repeat of the first part of the movement. The slow movement that follows, marked largo and in 3-4 time, is in E minor, and a passionate E minor at that, despite the fact that Bach again relies heavily on canonic counterpoint through much of the movement. Writing years later, C.P.E. Bach drew particular attention to his father's slow movements, and especially the singing style they so often exemplified. The theme here is not particularly vocal in its nature, and yet its emotional and lyrical qualities are undeniable. The theme, entering halfway through the first measure, is presented first by the violin with overlapping invitation from the harpsichord right hand, entering halfway through bar three. But the tail end of the theme is modified to allow for the first key change, a very brief one, to C major. I'll play the movement in a minute, but first I want to draw attention to a secondary idea that turns out to be almost as important as the main theme. It occurs in measure 5 in the violin as a continuation of the original theme and is heard against the last two measures of the harpsichord right hand's imitation. It serves, rather beautifully actually, to expedite the modulation from E minor to C major. Here's a simplified example, leaving out the harpsichord right hand imitation but including the harpsichord left hand to give it some harmonic context. Mm -hmm. 
after moving briefly through C major, where the harpsichord right hand enters with a slightly modified version of the theme, Bach moves to A minor, where the theme re-enters. By way of a sequential pattern, based in the violin on an extended variant of measure 4 of the theme, and in the harpsichord right hand, by the transitional phrase I played a minute ago, we then return to E minor. We stay there until the end of the movement, with the theme finally making an appearance in the harpsichord left hand, as well as a final appearance in the violin. The next movement in E minor in marked allegro and in common time is for harpsichord alone, the only such movement to be found among the six sonatas for violin and harpsichord. It's a vigorous movement, brimming with dance-like rhythmic energy. Its thematic material is in itself not terribly distinctive, unfolding initially in a four-bar phrase ending on the dominant and characterized by repeated rhythms, the second measure which begins over a dominant chord is immediately repeated in measure 3 on the tonic. Perhaps the most immediately arresting detail is the left-hand bass line, which strides up the E minor scale with march-like forcefulness. The rhythmic momentum slows slightly in the next four bars as Bach sets up a series of suspensions, but the left hand continues to press the issue rhythmically. Here are the first ten measures. As you can hear near the end of my example, many of the same rhythmic patterns persist throughout the first section of this binary form, 
and we remain aware of the predominantly ascending stepwise motion I noted earlier in both the right hand and left, even though the right hand later begins to contribute some descending cascades of sixteenth notes as we proceed. Harmonically, this first section is fairly conservative. We begin to tilt toward the key of D major by bar 11, and by the end of the section, we're firmly established in the relative major key of G major, which is common practice for the first section of a minor binary form such as this. The second section begins with familiar thematic material transformed by the relative brightness of the new key. Some new ideas do emerge, most notably a series of short-long, short-short-long syncopations, eighth-quarter, eighth-eighth-quarter, in the right hand, and Bach also introduces somewhat jolting chromaticism from time to time, almost completely absent in the first section of the piece, as he flirts with distant keys. It's also a bit busier, rhythmically speaking, with sixteenth-note runs in the right hand becoming commonplace. But the initial thematic idea, those first four bars, eventually make a return, albeit with the melody an octave lower, and it appears for a moment that much of the first movement will be replicated. But, after seven measures of this, Bach breaks away from familiar territory and breaks new ground, especially tonally. From there to the end of the second section and the movement as a whole, we hear a mixture of old and new ideas, with the syncopated rhythms of the second section once more coming into prominence, before another of Bach's cleverly chromatic approaches to the final cadence returns us to the original key at the close. Here is the last part of the second section. The fourth movement, for which the violin is back in action, is another very effective adagio, this one in B minor. The primary subject, presented initially by the harpsichord right hand, is a single bar in length and meanders a little more than an octave higher from its starting point on the fifth of the scale before retreating back down the scale somewhat. Rhythmically, it packs a lot into its limited space, most notably a series of subtle syncopations which play off against the ascending scale line in the left hand. Here's a simplified example of just the first bar, which we'll refer to as thematic idea number one. The initial syncopation on the first beat, that pattern of 16th, 8th, 16th, constitutes what is probably the most important rhythmic motive of the entire movement, but the measure actually gets more complicated as it goes along. The second beat of the measure replaces the first and last sixteenth note of the first figure with thirty-second notes, thereby increasing the momentum level immediately. The third beat is even more complex. It begins with two thirty-second notes again, but this time they pass not to an eighth note, but to a sixteenth note tied to a thirty-second note followed by another 32nd note in 16th. 
I know this is very difficult to visualize without a notated example to look at, but the result is a very fluid flow and a seeming avoidance of a strong beat pulse marker. The fourth bar is a little more conventional with its series of four 32nd notes followed by two 16ths designed to propel us energetically and probably a little more securely into measure two, where the first bar is imitated in the violin at the fifth. After the violin has completed its single measure imitation and we arrive at bar three, we encounter more interlocking syncopation. Violin and harpsichord right hand trade off new descending motives ending with a trill, but the left hand, now that we've moved to the minor dominant chord of F sharp minor, begins by quoting a variant of the first two beats of the subject. The rhythm's mostly intact, but the melodic motion inverted on the second beat. We would not be surprised at this point for the left hand to come forth with its own version of the subject, but that's not exactly what happens, at least not right away. This variant of the original two beats is now repeated down a step. Then, in the next measure, measure four, the left hand does provide a variant of the full one-measure subject, one that resembles it pretty closely. So by now, all three parts have had a crack at the one-measure subject, and measure five introduces two new ideas. Well, one of them is more new than the other. In the harpsichord right hand, we're introduced to a motive played four times in all, each time down a step, which is clearly derived from the first beat of the subject. We'll call this idea 2A. It's obviously not brand new, but the melodic shape is a bit different. Against that, in the left hand, and again in a cleverly interlocking pattern, we hear another repeated syncopated figure based on the second beat of the subject. We'll call that 2B. Again, it's not completely original, but in this context, it probably sounds more original than 2A. A measure later, the harpsichord right hand pattern flips up to the violin and the harpsichord left hand moves up to the right hand, as the left hand continues with a more conventional pattern of eighth notes against it. It's complicated, but here's a simplified example of measure five and six that may help clarify the situation. I realize that this is all very hard to keep track of, so here's a performance of the first seven bars to help you make some sense of how it all flows together. At the end of my excerpt, you heard Bach slide into E minor. It would not be unusual for the composer to reintroduce the subject in that new key. 
but actually Bach quotes the subject in the harpsichord left hand while in the process of moving to the new key, something he's done before, simply so that things do not become too square and predictable. He does it again a couple of measures later, where he appears to be moving toward A major, but sidesteps it to visit F-sharp minor. Here, it's the keyboard right hand that comes in with the subject, but it's also alluded to by the violin a measure later as that new key is confirmed. The subject returns more or less in its entirety, just four bars before the end, although it does so in the left hand and is overshadowed to some degree by the violin and right hand lines above it. And on top of these recurrences of the subject, the whole movement is thick with references to parts of the subject. For example, the first beat, or first two beats of the subject, which are spun out on their own. And of course, there are the other thematic ideas I referenced, 2A and 2B. They return as well, in different parts and in different combinations. Too many for me to try to describe. So this movement, which is endlessly expressive, is so, at least in part, because of the almost endless combination of the motives involved. I do want to point out one last element. As the movement draws to a close, relying on that first beat syncopated motive in all three parts, Bach introduces against that motive in the violin a wonderful descending chromatic line. It actually appears in the middle of the texture with the harpsichord right hand above continuing to play with that first beat motive. That line introduces a momentary confusion. What key are we going to end in? We probably expect B minor, but we hear a B major chord on the downbeat of the second to last measure. Somewhat surprisingly, we end with a major chord on D. It doesn't really sound like the tonic at that point, but that's not its job. It's there to propel us into the final movement, a zig in G major, and that it does quite nicely. We'll hear the last few measures of the movement. You'll hear the full one measure theme low in the keyboard left hand part, a final reference to the first beat syncopation in the violin, and later the haunting chromatically descending line and the final pause on D major. The final gigue in 6-8 in Marc Allegro contributes to the feeling in retrospect that we've actually been listening to something of a dance suite all along. The initial subject heard in the violin is typical of its style, fast moving, a combination of large leaps and repeated notes, or if heard as a divided melody of a type so typical of Bach, we hear the bottom part moving up by step from the tonic while the upper part mostly repeats the upper octave for the first couple of bars until the melody consolidates into one layer, climaxing with a formidable ascending leap of an octave and a half. We'll refer to the entire four-bar subject as thematic idea number one, 
even though the large ascending leap in the fourth bar will subsequently take on an independent significance. The invitation comes in at measure 5 at the 5th in the harpsichord right hand, altered slightly for some chromatic activity that hints at a modulation and then backs away from it. Against this invitation, we hear the harpsichord left hand continuing with its string of mostly arpeggio-based eighth notes and the violin providing a stream of sixteenth notes in rapidly ascending patterns. This flow of sixteenths is soon handed to the harpsichord right hand while the violin introduces a new melodic idea starting with a sustained tone, but soon moving to a more rhythmically distinctive figure, employing lower neighbor tones and then later upper neighbor tones, suspensions across strong beats, and the large ascending leaps heard in the fourth bar of the subject. Here is a simplified example of the violin's somewhat new melodic statement, which we'll call thematic idea number two. It's hard to tell from my simplified example, but Bach uses this pattern to modulate to C major, although it will come as no surprise that he isn't there very long. These thematic ideas and a few new ones treated sequentially dominate until we return securely to G major, where another new and somewhat more distinctive idea is introduced, one employing upper and lower neighbor tones circulating around D, the fifth of the scale, in combination with a large descending leap and a trill. Here's an example simplified and slowed down slightly. It's heard first in the harpsichord right hand, then repeated in the violin with the harpsichord doubling it down a sixth and followed by a descending scale line and sixteenth notes. We'll call it thematic idea number three. This idea with its quick little neighbor tones, trills, and descending octave leaps dominates for a while, but it's eventually replaced in the flow of things by other passing ideas, most of them repeated sequentially. When we move to E minor, thematic idea number three is repeated, this time starting in the violin and answered by the harpsichord. It again passes to other material dominated by sequentially repeated scale passages, but also including references to what I labeled earlier as thematic idea number two. Eventually, not quite two-thirds through the movement, we come to a hold on D major. Let's hear that much of the movement.
The second part of the movement begins in the harpsichord alone with a sustained first note breaking into sequentially repeated scale patterns. Soon we hear glimmerings of all of the thematic ideas I've referenced. We modulate a bit along the way, finally ending up in B minor. Then, after a pause in the action, Bach starts up again in the original key of G major and repeats the first section of the movement. Here's my last example from the beginning of the second section and into the repeat of the first section. It's a charming, energetic movement, not one of Bach's most complex, but it does make use of multiple thematic ideas and does so effectively and in an ever-changing mix. It's a more than satisfactory ending to a sonata, which is perhaps better known for its emotional slow movements and its unusual distribution of movements. That's it for the sonatas for violin and harpsichord obligato. We've looked at four of them now, but the two we missed are definitely worth investigating. In our 23 episodes, we've looked at a lot of box music, and there's a lot more to investigate in future episodes. But for the next episode, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a quick look at the music of one of Bach's contemporaries, Georg Philipp Telemann. 